0: Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast that helps you understand what your company is worth and what your exit options are. Host Ryan Tansom and his guests give you all the information you need to get clarity and control over your business, build a valuable company to be proud of, and exit on your terms. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 157. Today's episode, Chasing Perfection, Shadow the Illusion, Minimize Self-Doubt, and Maximize Success, is with Sue Hawks. And the title of the podcast is because it's based off of Sue's book. And Sue is one of the toughest people I've ever met because she was courageous enough to be vulnerable after realizing that the illusion of chasing perfection is a lose lose for almost everybody, especially us entrepreneurs who are constantly trying to hit the next target, hit the next goal, and a ton of pressure and weight from our family, friends, coworkers, partners, vendors, everybody relying on us and our success. Sue is a world-renowned keynote speaker, certified EOS implementer, certified business coach. She's the chapter chair for WPO. She's award-winning and globally recognized as a seminar leader and entrepreneur. She's got over 25 years of experience working with thousands of entrepreneurs and leaders as she's been developing her seminars, keynotes, workshops, and coaching programs. So Sue knows just how crazy all of us entrepreneurs are and how to call the bullshit of what we're trying to tell ourselves in the world and then how really dealing with the truth, being vulnerable and being courageous to tell others what you're dealing with is the key to success and taking it to the next level. And it's unbelievably important as you're trying to understand what your company's worth, what are the future goals for yourself and how does your business, the growth of the business and your exit fit into what you want. And identifying who you are, what you want and telling others is one of the key Parts of success to you being happy and getting what you want. Jack Stack even validated on the last episode as we talked about how most entrepreneurs don't do that and their businesses suffer because of it. And one of the reasons that this is important to me is because I think about the weight that we wore as we were trying to grow and turn around our company and all the stress that we were dealing with. And we just constantly thought we were alone. And if we would have just been vulnerable and asked, certain people in the right context for a little bit of help, they would have totally reached out and helped us if we would have known who to ask and in what kind of context. So today's episode is a must listen to because you're going to realize you're not alone and there's certain actionable things that you can do. First of all, reading Sue's book, but then she talks about all the different things that we can do to start reaching out and actually making progress with the reality of where we're at and how we can actually get to what our dream is of the integration of our business and life and a life after one final thing before we kick it off into the interview is if you did not hear it on the jack stack interview last week that we have evolved our practice and our new website arcona.io is where all the podcasts and all the resources reside and where you can find information on the two upcoming growth and exit boot camps that are in minneapolis in october and dayton ohio in november and they are three days jam-packed full of material on the five growth and exit principles that will help you level the mergers and acquisition playing field and educate you as an owner where it's just a safe place. You can go and ask all the questions that you know that you need to answer on how to grow your company. What is it worth? How do I hire my team of advisors? What are my options? What's my timeline? All the stuff that you need to know is packed into three days that will give you clarity and control over your journey. So you can actually walk out of that bootcamp knowing exactly what step to take check out our website arcona.io and the entire three-day bootcamp agenda is out there if you got questions reach out to one of our advisors or one of our team members it's in minneapolis minnesota on october 8th 9th and 10th and dayton ohio on november 12th 13th and 14th please reach out look at the agenda it's amazing stuff all the stuff that we wish we would have had and it's packaged up just for you so with that being said, without further ado, here's my episode with Suhawks. Sponsored by Arcona's Growth and Exit Boot Camps. Three days jam-packed with material on the five growth and exit principles and the world of mergers and acquisitions. You'll walk away knowing exactly what steps to take to get your target valuation and your best exit option. Three days at Arcona's Boot Camp will give you the clarity to control the rest of the journey. Sue, how are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Good. We just got back from the fourth. Like we said, we took us a whopping 17 minutes to get back on the show here. But um <laughs> I think we're I think we're both capable of having a good conversation after uh after a long weekend. So, you know, I, I had read your book and you and I had met and we circled around each other for quite a quite a few years here in the Twin Cities. And after reading your book, I really got a full deep dive into it. And actually, when you and I had coffee, I hadn't read it at that point. And you said it was a tough thing because you were so vulnerable in the book, which I think is going to be kind of the topic of, of today's show. But, you know, let's just, you know, for the, the listeners who haven't gotten uh, a chance to read your book or or have a familiar um, background of you, let's kind of, you know, maybe kind of... because. Give a couple cliff notes of, you know, some of the things that led you up to reading the book and kind of the premise of the book, because then we'll kind of te- keep keep time back some of the old stories into the into the conversation.
1: Absolutely. You know, so the background on the book in short is I'm somebody who wants to do everything in excellence. And I spend time like you do with CEOs and their leadership teams and in peer learning situations where it's all CEOs. And startlingly, over 20 years, I started to think, you know, we all think we're failures. And it seems like the more success we all seem to reap, we seem to question more and more whether we're ever going to get there. And I'm holding up air quotes right now because we seem to then set the bar higher, which perpetuates this feeling of doubt or insecurity or imposter syndrome or any of the things that's been labeled. and. Well before Brene Brown came out and opened the world to this great concept of vulnerability, I was saying, my gosh, these are the most confident, competent people I've ever seen. And I'm often labeled like that. And yet we all struggle with the same things. And there were thematic things that I kept hearing both for myself, but also for these, what I perceived as very powerful leaders in the world. And so the book evolved from. A, well, I can't talk about any of the things that happen in my rooms because it's confidential. But I can talk about me. So it's using myself and some of the leaders I asked to come forward in the book to be vulnerable and to talk about some of those thematic things, um, things like not knowing how to say no, not asking for help when you need to, the feeling of doubt that accompanies great success. How do you let go of a business once you grow it? Some of the All the same topics you cover so well on your podcast and um, it's a book written by a woman for any really conscious person but a lot of women have told me they've never had an all leadership uh, all female leaders featured in a book written by a woman so by women for women with women um, so that the world can just get a different spin on it
0: so it, and we're going to be diving into this because I think the, the the things that you, when, you know, you you did a great job in describing and, and unveiling all this stuff in the book, but I think, I mean, everybody deals with it. And I think you you hit on something that I've heard multiple times in a couple of different books recently, um, the imposter syndrome. I actually was talking mm-hmm. about it this last week and with a few other people. Um, can you, in your words, describe it? And then how did, like, how did you deal with it? And when did you like learn that that's kind of what you're going through because I think a lot of people struggle with it but they've never been able to like articulate it like it like it's now being described.
1: So it is a real thing. There was a research project in the 70s by two female researchers. They were hired to take a group of women because they thought it was a woman thing and say why do women experience this doubt when they're really very successful and they're trying to prove their worth based on competence and accomplishment. And Irrefutably, the research said, yes, that happens 80% of the time, 75 to 80% of the time with the most successful. And the more successful you are, the more often it occurs. And in fact, that 20 to 25% who says, no, I don't know what you're talking about, they're the actual imposters. <laughs> um, then <Yeah. laughs> about 20 years later, a lot of men were starting to hear about it. Because again, this is the 70s. Mm-hmm. And they thought it was a feminist thing and women were new to the workforce. So they thought, oh, it's they're insecure. It was really based on women are insecure. Well, in fact, men finally, I think, heard of it, number one. But number two then said, well, we experienced the same thing. And of course, the research wasn't there to prove it. So they asked these, the same two female researchers to come back and do it. And it proved the very same thing. Why it's common now is I really do attribute a lot of this to Brene Brown really making it cool Mm -hmm. and research-based and thoughtful and powerful to admit that what vulnerability looks like, and these are her words as I paraphrase them, you know, when I see you being vulnerable, Ryan, that's heroic, that's noble, that's inspiring to me because it's courageous. When I have to do it, oh, that's weak. That's awful. That's uncomfortable. I feel like a failure because in someone else, I can empathize and I can have p- compassion and I can relate and it makes them accessible and human. But when I do it, I don't really like being fallible in a public sort of way. I don't know about you, <laughs> but it feels like, oh, the, yeah, yeah, I'm the only dope doing that. And now everyone's judging and scrutinizing me. And I do think our world amidst the chaos that's out currently needs a huge dose of more humanity and kindness. And some of those soft things that sound so fluffy when you're talking about hardcore business, it's like, mm-hmm. well, why is kindness topical? Because we're lacking it. You know, why, why is vulnerability cool? Because people are experiencing it. We're mm-hmm. feeling exposed without being able to say, well, I want to be the one doing that.
0: Well, and it's interesting that like even after you after you come off a long weekend of the Fourth of July like this, I mean, how many, you know, there's there's so much bullshit out there of from like just getting pumped with everybody having these glorious weekends where like just of I mean, I mean, this is not specific to mm-hmm. kind of business, but my wife posted a picture of the our, our twins and her, and it literally was like bloody murder screaming, perfect picture for Instagram, <laughs> and then it was bloody murder screaming <laughs> again, and it's like you know that that's what all the other people are going through, so I think it's so right, it, you know, people are. I mean, they're they're thirsting for it, and I think you know that one of the things that I want to dive into is that you know you you talk about in your book about faking until you make it, and kind of you know want to tie into how you got to this point where you were comfortable doing this, but you know so many entrepreneurs, who, just like you talk about in your book, I've been in the CEO peer groups and I've speak spoke to them as well, and I was you know in them as you know, before and after the sale and. It's a lot of, you know, depending on which one you're going in, it's a lot of egos that are all just, you know, puffing up, you know, doing the peacock thing, where realistically, when you start doing the stuff that you and I do, you realize that 90% of them are not in good shape, financially or mentally or whatever it is. So this whole fake it till you make it, and then there's this this huge, like, tension that goes on there because they're not reaching out (laughs) and asking for help. So, you know, how did you decide... To, to flip it and actually be able to describe, you know, kind of with that one experience you talk about in your book where you decided to reach out and say, hey, it's not all perfect. And how explain how your life decided and actually decided to, not your life that didn't decide, but your life started to change because of what you decided to do.
1: You know, it was not an easy thing to do because I think in my own mind, as well as perceivably managed, you know, because I knew how people thought of me to a degree. I'm a Mm -hmm. self-aware person. Do I want to pop that bubble if it's a good thing? No. (laughs) Um, But my life was so upside down and there was so much not working. I was feeling so depleted that I felt like such a failure with persistence, which normally it'd come and go and I could manage it and I could get through it or I could find enough success or accomplish something else and sort of speed bump it. Might have been a nagging voice in the back, but it didn't permeate my life. And my life was in such a state of chaos that I felt like, again, you're referencing what we do for a living. I work with CEOs. I work with people who have their shit together. At least that's what they look like on Facebook and otherwise. (laughs) And to get in a room full of them and be like, hey, my life's a shit show and nothing's working- And let me tell you how you should be changing things. I mean, I have the worst possible career for that, as do you. Because people go, well, you're the expert. Oh, yeah, so I must be Teflon. And I think to some degree, if I'm perfectly honest, I bought that. I believed that. I thought, you know, I should be able to mentally and positively think my way through this. Because I have those tools. And I... For God's sakes, I taught and certified coaches for 20 years of my life. I'm a coach's coach. Again, doesn't put you in a position of, hey, I've screwed up a lot. It puts you in a position of, let's talk about how you talk through that and what you Mm -hmm. can do and how you can help people. So if you look up and you're the teacher and you're the person who is leading or asking, it's a pretty big drop to be like, and my life's falling apart. So everything I've told you, kind of a BS maneuver. and. It's just, that's a very uncomfortable thing. Now, did I one-on-one, if I was talking to you like this, would I talk about it? Sure. Would I tell you it was a complete shit show? No, I don't know you well enough to Mm -hmm. say that. But the person I was talking with had been both a mentor and a coach to me. And we were on the phone before this round table group that was virtual. And she was just like, how are you? And I don't know that I answered authentically but i probably said something like i'm okay you know which is about as far as i would have taken it you know i wasn't like oh i'm terrible i'm i'm indicating there's some disruption and she was smart and astute and one of those wise people who said wait what what do you mean like Mm -hmm. you that that isn't quite right and i said uh and I was at one of those moments where you're just at the right moment with the right person saying, you know, it's really bad. And right now I don't even see my way through it. And I just started to talk somewhat freely and pretty openly with her. And she said, well, you got to share this on that call. And I'm like, uh, ah, no. And it was... Um, I don't know if at the time I would have told you, honestly, that I thought it was pride. I think there was a good dose of that in there, for sure. Was it solely the reason? No. I think my competence was in question in my own mind, because mm-hmm. if I'm telling people this stuff, I think I was truly questioning, should I be doing what I'm doing? Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Look at this. I'm, I'm in the midst of a mess of a life. And for the listeners, if you haven't read the book, financially, I was a mess. My businesses were in trouble. The economy was collapsing. My mom was dying. My brother died shortly thereafter. I didn't know that was coming at the time. My dad died right after that. I was losing my house. It was in foreclosure. There was all kinds of shit going on. And self care, forget that. You know, single mom. (laughs) And my life fit in a pod. So it really, really was in all for all intents and purposes, a year prior, you would have looked at me on Facebook and I would have looked great. And in that moment, you would have said, liar, just complete liar. And there was some truth to it. And I think that was, I am someone who, if you ask me, I'll tell you. And I think because I was asked, I finally went, I can, I I got to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And I got on that call and I I literally said to her, I don't want to take up all the time. And I'm afraid. The other part was, I was truly afraid if I started talking about it, really, I wouldn't stop. Mm-hmm. And that I might ball my eyes out because that same strength or conviction or persistence or um, fortitude you have to build a business and help people and to dig deep and be an athlete and all the things that make you really strong are the same things that you're holding yourself together with. So if I let that go, is it all going to be like a damn flooding? Mm-hmm. And so I think there are moments you have like that with trusted advisors and with trusted partners but to do it in a group setting, whew, you know, that was calling it all out, you know, and I think I was at a point with somebody who I felt safe, you know, what am I protecting? What what is the thing? And I don't know it was that logical because once I started talking, there were lots of tears from lots of people on the call. And, you know, for I think anyone who's had these kinds of turning points in their lives, I got well more support Then I felt crushed Um, over the coming week. Just about everyone who was on that call called, wrote a note, reached out, you know, told me they had been the same at or they were there then or they were feeling this, you know. And so it was far more bonding, which, again, in a group setting, I didn't expect Mm -hmm. as much as I had been that for a lot of people. It just wasn't there. And so it does reinforce, and at least for me, started me saying, if I can do this. Somebody else might need the permission to do it. And um, I give her more credit than anything I did.
0: Well, but I, you know, I think you you show it, you know, through the book and through even just you describing it now, it's such a huge example, Sue, because, you know, I, I'll give you a little two cents of like what I see and like, you know, what what my my dad and I went through, because, you know, we were. Juggling cash flow and trying to keep the doors alive all the way to the goal line. <laughs> and, you know, it just like what I, so that some of the things that I've seen over the last five years since is that most entrepreneurs are dealing with the same stuff. So there's even a book I've got like Mike Melkwoks coming on the show. He wrote a book called Profit First. And he talks about how like 90% of all owners, like you could be 40 million dollars and you're still juggling cash flow and not actually Correct. making any money. And then so like the the the, the channel the major challenge that I, I see is that you have so the the fake it till you make it syndrome, which is literally I mean, it's the case when you're trying to get the new clients. I mean, I've done it, you know, in this business and in the previous business where you're doing that, but then all of a sudden, you know, all your employees. So it's not just you, it's your employees that look to you, your family that looks to you, your yeah. clients that look to you, then your advisors that look to you. And you're going, who can I tell that I'm a shit show emotionally right. and financially? <laughs> because any, first of all, every one of those people have a stake in manipulating your thought process. And so there there, there becomes this, you know, this whole challenge of going, okay, I you, you don't even know who to become vulnerable with, even if you wanted to. And so the, the, some of the things just to kind of like I, as I was um, going through and I've been writing my book, you and I were talking more, you know, most of these entrepreneurs, they, they realize when they go through this that they're either burnt out and then all of a sudden it's like, wham, there's a semi truck and they don't know how to, you know, emotionally they want out and they're willing to be like literally do anything to get out because they feel so trapped. And then there's the other part of, okay, so once you feel so trapped, Look then you start to realize that your company's worth a fraction of what it is because you weren't focused on the right things. So who do you tell? Do you tell your spouse that by the way my company is worth almost, you know, a tenth of what I thought it was? So there's all these dynamics that just get piled right on. And it's just I, I don't know like how I people don't know where to turn. I mean, really, it's it's a, right. a very challenging thing. So how what what would you give someone in that situation? What kind of I mean, what two cents or advice or
1: well, I think you've gotta have people you do tell the truth to and you have to break the um teflon part of that if you will because i think peer learning is really truly one of the biggest greatest resources we have but to your point i think over time it can be normalized if not facilitated well or if you well i'm i'm not telling this group that because i really do believe most peer learning is set up for hey, I should feel comfortable calling Ryan directly or being able to walk into the meeting and say, shit, I I can't say it anywhere else and I need help Mm -hmm. um, in whatever way. And I think when they become that chest beating, we're up 40% month over month, all year. And you just go, really? (laughs) Totally. Good, good. What are the other 200 things that aren't working? Because while you're growing like that, There's a shit show happening with your people, or your systems need to be changing, or you know the infrastructure is not strong enough, or you've oversold, or you're underperforming, or your customer service is failing. And if you're just walking in going, "We're amazing every month," you're a liar. And that's where I just look up. And when my groups get there, I'm often the one going, "Wow, everybody is awesome this month. We are either in a great groove." And that, is, that happens mm-hmm. occasionally. Certainly everyone has those months. Or we're not seeing what's going to hit us in the face in a very short period of time. So what aren't we talking about that we should be? Mm-hmm. Because it isn't, peer learning isn't there, you know, just for when it's a shit show, but it should be the impetus to change and to push and to work and to be authentic and to be vulnerable and a safe place to land when it's not. It should also be the place where you can walk in and say, oh my God, you wouldn't believe this. Like we just sunk our first $5 million deal and we've never done that before. And I don't even know if we can deliver upon it. And it's the best news ever because we doubled our business, but I don't know what to do with it. So it should be both places. It's the stuff we used to say in one of our groups, it's the stuff you can't talk about at a cocktail party Mm -hmm. because you would be deemed a braggart or an idiot. Mm-hmm. And that's what it should be. So that that would be my first thought. And the other one is, if you don't have one or two people who are not your spouse and not your best friend, because that's not why they're in your life, but the truth teller people, the people who look at you and just say, hey, you know, Sue, you're full of shit. You're not mm-hmm. that great. Yep. You know, or you're not that bad. Come on. Did you forget about this, that, and the other thing? Let's get back to there. Let's start there. You got to have some people like that in your life who, no matter how great you are, they they make sure you're adjusted <laughs> with some humility. And no matter how bad it is, they don't let you forget how great you are. And it's, that's not your best friend.
0: Right. No, I, and, I, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I, just to kind of go back to you when you talk, talk about the peer learning, because I mentioned a lot of the peer groups, just your definition of peer learning, because it's not, it might be different for what most people might be thinking.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a bunch of um, leaders who are similar in stature. Could be number one people, meaning C-level. Could be number twos. Could be up-and-comers. Doesn't matter. It's a group of peers in similar positions saying, how do we talk about the real deal, the real Mm -hmm. challenging stuff? And I primarily work with female CEOs of multimillion-dollar companies. Um, Whether they've acquired them, whether they've built them, whether they have been generationally, you know, sucked into it with the family. It doesn't matter. But they're people running complex structures, whether that's a million to a billion dollars, and they're trying to figure it out every day. Well, and there are people who call BS.
0: Right. And I think that that is so important. And to, like you said, to also use that as being real too, because so many times when I when I think about the biggest challenge, honestly, Sue, that I see happening in the next five to 10 years is you know the baby boomer wave of people that are going to have to understand and deal with the reality that they're not going to run their business forever i mean and it's Mm -hmm. millions of companies and they don't realize that what it's not worth what it should be but then also that their identity is tied into it they have a lifestyle that they've over probably they're they're over over living this lifestyle because of the cash flow but it doesn't correlate to the value of the company and there's all this stuff that is happening and they're going to have to deal with it and so many times I see them go to like their CPA or the attorney, which they don't know how to relate to someone that has to do with the emotional piling of so many stakeholders that have to do with you showing up and working every day. And right. when I see people, they they just like literally have almost like a panic attack or, you know, a nervous, like, and they just want to call a broker and investment banker and offload it and financially detriment themselves because they don't know what else to do. And it's just, it's just—it's it's sad because you don't know who to turn to. And they, they end up reaching out to someone that has a tactical answer, not the emotional, like, I know what you're dealing with.
1: Right. And I think you need both, actually. You know, I think you need a team of advisors, but to your point, how many people have founder syndrome where it's like, well, if I let go of this thing or I'm not running it daily, then who am I and what does that mean? If someone if you were to go to a cocktail party and people said, hey, hi, what do you do? Oh, my God, what would your answer be if not own a business? That sounds important. You know, what does it mean if you're not that anymore? If you say, oh, I founded that thing over there, is that less than? Is it, oh, I sold my business and my old news? How do you find purpose and meaning every day? I mean, there's big human questions beyond the what do I do with my time every day?
0: Right. Yeah, it's, tough, it's tough. A, it is it is, and I, it, what what are like, I'm trying to think of like how, someone that's in there like you know if is it reaching like what are the ways to continue to make this a practice you know you in the book you talk about the support structure they came out so like you know someone that's thinking that this would be nice to be able to start let letting this out and being able to describe the stuff that's actually going on to rally people around them what are ways to, that that people can start to you know, describe your support structure, I guess, and like how you realize that people came out and then what people could expect from their managers and employees to the uh, to their family, that it's not going to be, like you said, the whole air gets taken out of the balloon.
1: You mean as they let as
0: go? Yeah, as in like you you had mentioned that you had, uh, there was a, a gal that had, you know, you, I think you said to your to your group that how many people said offered oh, up a place to stay. Yeah, just so the think- support comes out out of nowhere that you just wouldn't expect.
1: Yeah, I think the support started from that very group that I revealed all this crap in my life to. And I said, Here, everything's falling apart. And as I told my story, several of them related to some or a part of it and would reach out and say, Oh my God, I've been where you are and I've been through a divorce and we need to talk. And, you know, what do you have in terms of this? And have you read these books? And anything from resources to just being able to relate and say here's where I am. So it was in sharing with the whole group that it got started. And for me personally, I think what it changed was it once a secrets out. I don't care what the secret is. Those feel like secrets I was protecting right. something and no one knew how bad it was. Once it's out, it has no more mystique. It doesn't sound that interesting. It doesn't have you you have it. And so I felt like I could have gotten on this podcast, and now I've told this story, and I'm 12 years beyond it, and I've done a lot to try and heal my way through it, and I did work through it, and I had to develop, to your point, I I use the word practices because they're not perfect and because they're evolving all the time for my own mental, physical, spiritually, emotional, financial intellectual well-being because I needed it. I was not in good shape in any of those domains. So you got to start practicing some new things because what I was doing got me right where I was. Now, all of that wasn't bad. At that moment, it culminated to an interruption Mm -hmm. in everything I was doing. But some of it was worthy and keepable. And that's where I had to do my undoing mentally because the imposter syndrome is an overarching feeling like I'm a failure, like who I am is, instead of, you know, some of the stuff I'm doing is perpetuating the results I have. So I've got to rewire a whole bunch of things and I can't take them all on at once because I won't sustain them. So let me take some of the low hanging fruit and start there and build a habit of success where it's like even at working out back then, I've been an athlete most of my life, but I told people, the concept had never occurred to me to lower the bar. That, in fact, was offensive to me. But to be able to say, well, you're, you're not doing much right now, so there's not a whole lot to undo. So what if you just said, once a week, no matter what, no matter how much I'm dealing with, with my mom dying, being a single mom, dealing with two struggling businesses, finding a new place to live, working my way through a divorce, it's a, a lot of negative. That being said, I got to find some time to do something just for me. And all I said was, once a week, I'm going to find 30 minutes or more just for me. And it didn't have to be to work out, and it didn't have to be I could read a book, I could go for a walk. So I started finding ways to do that. And I literally said, it has to be once a week, because it felt overwhelming. Why? Because amidst all of that, that was a lot to ask of myself, because at the time, I wasn't doing Anything. Well, Mm -hmm. the reason was I didn't feel deserving. I didn't feel worthy. I didn't feel good. So, all of that feeling stuff you were talking about, nobody's going to manage my way through it than me. You know, so it was like, what can I do to affirm something? And lo and behold, after I would say probably four, five, six weeks, I started going, I'm doing it. I'm making that time. I'm keeping my word. It's not a lot. I'm doing it. But then pretty soon, you start saying well i am doing that and i do that easily because it's become a practice and i'm still going to keep it at 1 i'm not going to keep raising the bar because that's the allergy i have right that <laughs> that is my addiction so but i started to say if i get 2 in this week that'd be okay and so after a while it started to be yeah i'm i'm successful i'm successful whether it's at a low pace or something like now where i'm much more rigorous about every day i do something and it's a thing that's a priority on my list now it's moved but it didn't move you know like uh it felt like a snail's pace it felt like training for a marathon when i was 300 pounds overweight and it certainly wasn't that it is me constantly telling myself consistent incremental improvement idiot consistent incremental not all of it at once as hard as I can um, and that was that was the biggest takeaway over the past 12 years has been pacing never the way I like it you ever
0: read the compound <laughs> effect book
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah yeah
0: it's so difficult and I think you know as entrepreneurs and as we're all genetically wired it seems like to just go balls to the walls in what we know and like I think what you say is so applicable even to as as owners are struggling to, you know, to hand stuff off to their people, right, as like to try and not be the man or woman that's, you know, the, I think there's a lot of affirmation tied into the business too, where they're, they're a leader. And so they're constantly in there fixing stuff. And there's, you know, you get so much of this affirmation where I think, you know, to your example about even the self care, but like, in the hobbies, outside of the business, if you start little by little, trying to figure out how to hand stuff off, it, because I actually said to one of my clients recently, I said, "Hey, you know, when you eventually get out of this, it's going to be very difficult to find the affirmation that you're getting from your almost 100 employees on a right. daily basis somewhere else, unless you start now. Because <laughs> it's right. it's so so much. I mean, and what you know, you talk in the book too about saying no. And I don't know if that you know, can you maybe describe your practice saying no? And I I actually just got done reading the book uh, Essentialism, where they talk yeah. about that too. Yeah. Or like,
1: Craig McEwen."
0: Uh, it's a great book. I mean, and it I is. think that's a lot. I mean, I don't know if there's a correlation between saying yes and entrepreneurship that you see that, that that kind of traps people into this too.
1: Oh, I 100% agree with you. Yes. And my business is named yes. So how bad am <laughs> I at the water <laughs> bottle? Like this is <laughs> my problem. But I I do think we say yes to too much. Part of it is we're, you know, for most entrepreneurs, what we identify with, or at least what I identify with, is I want to do everything new and different, and it keeps my mind engaged, and it's exciting, and that's fun, and it's good, and I like novelty. And so I don't see a lot of negative if I say yes, except <laughs> for the fact that I'm not focused, and I'm not, I'm going, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep instead of, you know, an inch wide and a mile deep. And if you really want to be known, if you really want to be successful, if you really want to master anything, you know, um, I was at Paisley Park last week because we were doing a staycation in Minnesota. And there was a story that a friend of mine told me about Prince. And, you know, Prince was a master at so many things. And being a native Minnesotan, I have always admired the guy. Um, Musical ability, whether you like him or not. But Talk about someone who is obsessive and mastered whatever he did, whether it was ping pong or guitar. But the story this person told is they were asking him a question and his response was, I play the guitar. Now, he did way more than play the guitar, but that's his mindset. Like, I play the guitar. And so everything he did was about how do I do that better? And I thought about that going, you know, the guy rarely slept, we saw this mixing board with a billion buttons on it and there's only 10 of them in the world and he had it in his studio and we got to record a song on it and I'm looking at this thing and my husband asked the sound engineer, how'd he learn to do that? Cause he mixed all of it himself. Mm-hmm. And the engineer said, you know, he was a genius. He just bought it and figured it out. There was no YouTube to watch. Like he right. sat there and mastered it. And I think if you're not disciplined and I think discipline and focus creates freedom and I think for most entrepreneurs like myself we tend to push against structure because it's like oh it sounds like limitation instead of no there's some boundaries and that's all yes and no are our boundaries so if you can learn to say no which I am consciously working on to date and always probably will be Learning to say no is actually the most important thing I think we can learn because we'd say yes to everything. And I think saying no to the right things and only saying yes to two or three things is what most of us need to do if we're going to master anything.
0: Well, which I totally agree. And I'm really terrible at it, (laughs) which is why I was reading those books, you know, and especially being in a more of a startup i went from being having an infrastructure of a company to a startup which it's even more challenging because of how focused you need to be which again is a challenge but i think the the, the interesting dynamics that i see sue with all of these things kind of accumulating together is that you know when you have this like i call it like the, the the looking up when the owner kind of goes okay What's next? You know, it's the same thing, whether it's I need to be, well, I, you know, first thing is I have to be vulnerable. I have to really come into grips. Like, what is my company worth? What is my role in it? Where do I go? Like, there's a lot of introspective work that all this stuff. And how do you, I've never been, I haven't been able to figure out or how to describe to someone how to f- take that, you know, sheer momentum that pe- that entrepreneurs have, you know, where that it's like the healthy anxiety, I think, where you're de- dealing with the new stuff. And how do, how do you funnel it into something when you look up, right? Where there's a new project where you can swim through that instead of going, shit, this is not what I want to do, which then they put their head back down and it's so detrimental financially and emotionally to them. Like, there's got to be a way to like bridge that gap and help them, you know, emotion, like emotionally to to overcome that. And I I don't know, it's an interesting dynamic because of how we're wired, I guess.
1: Right, but I do think like because I'm an EOS implementer, I think in terms of having that structure can be some of the ways you learn to say yes and no based on your core values, based on your core focus, based on. I can't be the only one to do this, so I'm going to have to let some chips fall. I'm not going to let us go out of business, but not be the savior, the hero. The, mm-hmm. My ego has got to be disengaged enough to let people rise, not for me to go in more out of perfection and correction.
0: What have you, when, as people in the U.S. terminology they get into the owner's box, I mean, I, I've seen different things, but they, what have you seen that has worked from all your clients or people you've worked with as they shift their attention, right? To mm-hmm. to consume themselves enough where they're not bored where they're actually, you know, because I've seen some people that go to the owner's box on their boards and they go right back down to metal with things. You know, how, yep. what have you seen that have worked as people have moved into the, the point where they're actually an owner instead of a, a doer?
1: I think it's a transition. And to your point earlier, you know, you were alluding to, you got to have hobbies. You got to have a life worth living outside your business. And I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, their business is their lover. Um, It's the other one they don't tell their spouse about, you know, and their spouse is keenly aware, Mm -hmm. but it's like, what can you re-engage with or what can you start in your own life that makes you better as a human. I think that's key. And not knowing where to start is the best indicator that's what you need to do. The second thing I would say is some of them in that transition till they're all, you know, all the way over to the owner's seat have to do things like be on other boards, find volunteer opportunities, find ways to open doors for their existing company that they can throw over their shoulder to let the company deal with not as shiny objects, not unrelated, but that actually open doors strategically for the business itself because it starts to be, oh, being out is actually better than being in because I'm creating Mm -hmm. and then let their team manage which of those opportunities really are furthering the business and which ones do we have to politely decline or find another way to manage or whatnot. That can be board work. That can be golfing, believe it or not. Even though people go, oh, that's retiring. I go, you know, there's a lot of business that gets done playing different kinds of sports and things. It can be speaking, becoming a thought leader. You have all this accumulated knowledge. You can be, you know, a voice for the business. But those kinds of transitions to me still link to directly impacting the business, but free that owner to not be in it and figure out what to do about it. They're just door openers, connections, etc. And the freer they get and the more they get their appreciation, their attention, their um, kudos by helping elsewhere and solving other problems, it's easier to start saying, yeah, running that thing, not what I wanted to be doing and I wasn't the best one for it. So then when you get to the owner's box and you really are saying, you know, If I'm volunteering and randomly I get something, I can toss it to people, but that's not why I'm there. Mm -hmm. Um, It starts to be that transition. And for a lot of people, it leads to other, you know what? I'm ready to start this new company. And it's not that, and I'm going to have yet one more round in me, fine. If not, you're building a life on the way. So it's like building the plane while you're in the air.
0: Well, and I think it, it actually circles back perfectly to when we were talking about becoming vulnerable, where like, instead of having to disclose to everybody that like, even if your life is somewhat put together, right, <clears throat> and we, you don't hit like the, the bottom or anything, but you you can at least be, start by saying, hey, I don't know if I want to do this anymore, like as in, you know, my role. So like, right. you, know, you, can, you can ask, you know, something where your managers or your advisors or whoever can start to give you some thoughts about, you know, giving you some thoughts about what they might bring you solutions to. So then you can start you know, t- tackling the different ideas that they have, because they want, you know, it, it's a more of a cooperative way of understanding. And I think there's this whole like notion of that, that they have to be needed. And if they can ask, you know, for others, that like, I don't want to necessarily be needed as much, then people would actually give them some ideas.
1: Correct. I th- I think, To your point, that's a very vulnerable place to say, you know, what do you think I should be doing, Ryan? I mean, what's the highest and best use for me? Your ego's got to be pretty uh, in check. down. Right? (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, if you're aware enough to do that, that's spectacular Um, because your leadership team is probably the best resource for it. What I see often is, you know, an owner saying, I don't want to speak. That doesn't interest me. I don't want to be a thought leader. And their team's going, Oh, you'd be so great. And they're going, Yeah, not so much my happy place. And so it's more managing. If I'm not how I've, ident- it's all about identity. You've mm-hmm. got to do the hard work around who am I minus? Who am I just as a human being? And am I, you know, whole? Just being that person walking around on the street, do I like who I wake up to? What would I do if, My spouse went to work every day and this, all I did was wake up and I was home. What would I do? And I think some people go, oh my God, I'd panic. (laughs) You know, it's like, what? You can only work out so much. You can only play so much golf. And that's where I say to people, then find out where you can contribute because all you're doing is trading where and what you contribute. It's not Mm -hmm. even always the what, it's where. Mm -hmm. And sometimes... You know, I have always said, I thought one of the coolest opportunities in my future was to be a philanthropic multimillionaire and not because I wanted to be uber wealthy. That's not my motivator. My motivator is, wouldn't it be cool to donate money and then be able to go do the work I already do for free and follow what they do with it and see if they manage it well so that I could say that really had impact and I qualitatively insured Mm -hmm. it. Not just I gave a, I gave a, a check. check and I didn't yeah. feel so great. It was kind of hollow. Because writing the check's the easy part. Do you get invested enough to make sure that things happen? And for owners, oh my gosh, you have so many talents that you can afford other small businesses or human beings, or you can coach them, or you can run roundtables, or you can volunteer for all the nonprofits that would love to have a smart, educated, um, scrappy you know, innovative person helping them grow and now you're having impact, which is a whole different thing, but you're not the boss. And that's the part that I think most uh, successful people struggle with.
0: I agree. And, you know, I, um, I'm, uh, my previous episode, I was, we had a lot of conversations about men versus women leaders and how actually vulnerability have to do with it. And that we actually tied it into conscious capitalism zoo, where I think that a lot of women leaders and entrepreneurs have kind of tied that in because of how they're wired. And, you, you know, you speak a lot towards the back of the book about this and you may, you know, without, you know, disclosing not disclosing but you know going into uh, too much depth about it but like you know women and men there's a lot of men entrepreneurs right and i mean there's Mm -hmm. a a, a bigger majority of that but then you know i think that women are actually more you know successful being vulnerable and getting to that point asking for help and i might be wrong but like i mean i see so many you know what do you if you're on either side of those what do you what suggestions what what are the, the common things that you see on both sides and what would you know You lend to people, whether they're a male or a female, how they would how they should deal with that, and or other people that are the opposite sex that are sitting across from them. How do you? What what are some of the things they have to say about that?
1: That's a a wonderfully loaded question. (laughs) Uh,
0: And I just kept going too, of course. No, it's
1: good. The thing I would say is I think the world we're in now is less gender focused. I think the incoming generations are much more around non-binary and people who aren't identifying as male, female. Either or. And the thing I would say is, our culture historically, up to this point, I think gives more permission to girls, females to be emotional, to be vulnerable that way, that you can tell the truth about that stuff. I still think young men, boys are taught to be tough and suck it up. And it's not cool to talk about. Now, is that holistically true? No. But I think the other thing that I see is when it's a homogenous female group, there's a ton of vulnerability. I think a whole bunch of women with not one man present will have more vulnerability and more authenticity than a mixed group or than when there's one woman and a bunch of men, which is historically how boards and things get comprised. Mm -hmm. Conversely, when it's all men and I've been the woman, um, The chest pumping and the protection of thyself is far more prevalent than in a mixed group or when there's one man with all women. I think men tend to adopt the other and start to say, wow, you know, it's easier to be in a group of women and tell the truth because with one or two guys, the women treat the men just like they're just other women in the room holistically, if you're not Mm -hmm. talking about sidebars. And so in watching group dynamics, to me, when there's a mix, women compete with each other, you know, for the men's attention, for Mm, their voice to be heard, for all kinds of things that I at least have seen happen. And the men just do what men would do. I don't think men change much when it's a, there's a few women, there's a few men, men tend to do what they do. I think women start to compete and get nasty and do just weird behavior. You wouldn't see if it was all women or if there were a few guys in with the women and yep. so hmm. that's in a really generalized way mm-hmm. what i've observed in groups but i would say i just think society has made it okay and i think it's one of those things that people like you who are conscious that's how i talk about whether person is male or female if they're conscious they're aware of who's around them and what's going on and you interrupt it and you ask questions or you demonstrate what you'd wish would happen in the group like i always say you know the hardest part for me was going first so do that you know mm-hmm. be the person to say hey i just want to talk about something i'm a little nervous about right now and i'm afraid and i would love the permission from everyone to do so and i'm just asking no no jokes right at the moment because i'm feeling a little shaky Something like that sets a tone where everybody goes, oh, and it might be, you know, I had a leader in a group recently that said, I don't feel worthy, and a much longer story than that. But everyone in the group went, I feel the same way. I have moments like that. I, and it changed the tone of the whole group from a very positive, I wouldn't say superficial, it was a pretty good conversation, but to a much deeper place. And when someone's willing to go first and champion that and be vulnerable that way, I don't care if it's all men, all women or mixed, suddenly everybody goes, oh, moment, take it or don't. And the people who are uncomfortable with it don't hang around. They either leave, they digress into jokes, they do things that don't foster that. And again, depending on the level of familiarity and trust in the group, if it's a really trusting group, you would have more propensity to bust that person and be like, not the right time for the joke.
0: Mm -hmm. You Mm -hmm.
1: know, or you'd say, you know what? Yeah, you can leave. We're going to stay with this. This is is a touchy moment for so-and-so.
0: Uh, well, and I've seen I've seen that too much. We're like, and you, you know, if there's a, if it's the right group too, they're gonna know that that person's probably got more baggage than everybody else, which is why why it's coming out. Right.
1: And you invite them to play along. It's like you know, let let's hang here and see what happens. Just chill out a little bit, you know. And that person often will be like, "Hey, I'm checking myself. Sorry, it's really uncomfortable for me."
0: So I know we're uh, we're getting close to the wrapping up here. You know if if you're, you know, for the listeners that are, you know, we, we covered some good ground, but you know, if if someone's sitting there and they've got the kind of that brinking point, and, you know, they're they're either dealing with the imposter syndrome, they're just looking up, they've got some stuff to deal with, and they're just trying to figure out what what dot to connect first. You know, what would be maybe your 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 big takeaway for them?
1: I think that's hard. Um, I mean,
0: part Partridge. of why.
1: I wrote my book the way that I did and I'm, I'm defaulting to that is, you know, it has 10 chapters and I told people don't read it cover to cover. Read the one that stands out right now because it might be more pertinent mm-hmm. than anything else you're going to read. And I think life works like that. If it's your business, seek great advisors such as yourself. Look for resources. It can be books. It can be YouTube. I personally think you need many mentors. I think mentoring has changed a lot in our world, and I think we all need several, not one. I don't think your mentor is the person you're going to grow up to be, which is how it traditionally used to be. I think you have mentors for different things. Um, So my first thought would be seek someone you can confide in and trust who's not your significant other and not your best friend. It's someone who will be really straight with you, maybe in that uncomfortable sort of way, where you go, "Yeah, I'm. I may not always love it, but I love that they they give mm-hmm. me the real deal." And I would say that's that's step one always, because you get perspective, you don't get isolated, and once you say it, it doesn't feel so scary.
0: I think that's yeah. It was a tough question, but you, I think you you nailed it because it's it, it's finding that person that doesn't have a a motive to lean you in one direction, right? Which is why the, the Teflon is there. Because <laughs> right. it's trying to protect yourself. Um, for people that want uh, to get to know more about your book or about your company, what the, the things that you're doing, your podcast you started to what are the different ways to get in touch with you?
1: Websites suehawks.com or say yes with two Y's in the middle and two S's in, on the end. So it's say yes with two S's. Um, both are dot com you know i gratefully am taking copious notes every time i get to see you cuz you're an expert podcaster and i'm a newbie podcaster so for your listeners you know we are content providers just like you are so we have a podcast we have a daily blog we have things and resources by the plethora on our website that are free and available to you and we're all about having you know a movement of people which I'm grateful to be back and here with you, um, Ryan, because I love being around people like you who make me think and make me better and want to help people in these sorts of ways. So we want to provide resources and offer your website as one of the resources. And when that book is done,
0: oh, we'll gosh. be offering There's that story as there. well.
1: <laughs> and you can be on my podcast as well. And we'll just keep championing one another because that's what's going to make everyone better. So please reach out and please share.
0: And it's been an absolute blast Sue. you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Well, if you enjoyed that episode, I have to say you would absolutely love Sue's book. I read it and the whole time I, well, I didn't read it. I was listening to it. The whole time I was listening to it, I was like, oh my God, this is me. And this is all my friends and all the entrepreneurs and all the peer groups. Like, we just put so much pressure on ourselves to succeed because the whole point of being an entrepreneur when you start out, it's succeed and fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it because that's how you get the funding, that's how you get the client, that's how you get the employees. And at some point, you have to almost recalibrate and then sit down and say, okay, what kind of life do I want to live? Who is going to be next to me? Are they going to bring me energy? Are they going to help me become the better version of myself? And then you can actually understand how you need to change your business into what you need it to be to accomplish the goals that you want. So if I have any takeaways is just do the inner reflection and find one trusted person you could reach out to. Find someone you trust, confide in them. And if you want to find those people, take a look at our Growth and Exit Boot Camps on arcona.io. That's A-R-K-O-N-A.io. The three-day agenda on how to grow next year companies on there. The whole point is level the M&A playing field. It's a safe spot where you can sit down with a bunch of other people and be like, what the heck does EBITDA mean? Or how do we sell our company to a private equity? What's the difference between selling to an ESOP versus a strategic? And maybe I do want the money versus my legacy, or maybe I want the legacy more than the money. All of those things are what we cover in the bootcamp. So go check it out and look forward to our guest, who is Dwayne Smith, who shares how he has created an internal perpetual legacy with his ridiculously large insurance company. So lots to look forward to. I will see you next week.